Hey folks, another two-parter this week because that's how we roll around here with longer episodes. Listen, a lot of you've told me that life gets in the way when episodes are too long, so we get it. So we're going to leave y'all in suspense. Yes, you're going to want to keep coming back for more and you're definitely going to want more of my lovely guest and fellow improviser, Carrie Weisberg. This week is part one. Next week will hopefully incredibly obviously be part two. So come back and listen for that. We appreciate y'all. <laughs> oh, hi. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, Carrie Weisberg. Originally from Colorado, Carrie is a writer, actor, producer living in Los Angeles. She studied at Boston University and then made her way to Los Angeles after graduation. Before she became too jaded, Carrie continued studying at the Second City Hollywood where she found her comedic voice and her people. Carrie has been lucky enough to work consistently in one way or another in the entertainment industry for the last several years, producing shows such as Safe Word on MTV and VH1, Great Minds with Dan Harmon for History and Ease, Brunch at the Oscars, Oscar pre-show and most recently Carrie just wrapped production as a producer on a new show called Go Big Show to be aired on TBS in January of 2021 so look out for that show. Carrie has also been billed as a writer for some non-airing pilots for E, We and Feelin and even a real life airing show for DreamWorks TV on YouTube. That is such a crazy awesome bio. Good lord. Carrie has done a lot of things. I better know Carrie from both performing on the stages of and passing each other in the hallways of the Second City where we fell into the beauty that is the improv community and where we met and how we stayed in touch. And Carrie, it is so lovely to have you on. Please tell us how amazing is it to improvise with me because I'm obviously the best improviser you've ever worked with. How much? Yeah, thank you. And uh, how much do you miss being on stage? Like, how are you? Okay, good. Keep go. You're a lot. I miss it a lot. And also, thanks for having me Kate I'm so glad you're here this is is such a treat what a fun thing to do instead of just like staring at the wall (laughs) (laughs) I wish it were in person I'm a little bummed that I didn't think to do this before I left LA but it's okay okay better late than never facts that's true um, facts. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I can also hand you guys um, an audio file of my resume, which isn't <laughs> fully in my bio. But I, I mean, I've got more if you want it. I know you do. It's very impressive. <laughs> I was like, this is the condensed version audience. She has done so much work. So what oh, got yeah, you? Yeah. So you okay, so you came out to LA with the intention of producing or acting or writing or all of the above or none of the above? What was your why'd you come to LA? Good question. I always my whole life had wanted to be an actor. And so I came to LA to, I was theater trained at BU and I had always done theater. I actually, for years at BU refused to do improv because I was like, I can, I can remember my lines. So <laughs> like, what a jerk. Am I allowed to swear on that? Absolutely. Go to town. Okay. I am a fucking asshole because <laughs> it changed my life, but like during college and there's like a great improv scene in Boston, but I just refused. And I was like, I like drama. And now like all I do is work in comedy. So like, whatever. I mean, kids are stupid. So let that be a lesson. (laughs) Facts. Um, So I came out to be an actor and then through Second City, actually, you know, in the program, you learn how to write sketches later on when you keep going before you graduate. And I was like, I hate writing and we'll never do this. And then I turns out I don't hate it when it's something that you like to do. And it's not like a formal essay about you know, the works of Emerson, who's great, by the way, <laughs> but a bit um, boring though, for being honest with ourselves, a bit boring. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So I learned how to write properly, like dialogue and stuff. And I kind of self-taught myself how to format scripts with a lot of help from friends where I was like, how does this scene work? So and, you uh, never took a writing class. You were just like uh, workshopping with friends. Yeah, I would. I, cause I, you know, as an actor, I think that actors are generally really good at the dialogue and an improviser like you know what words fit in your mouth and you know how to how to say what you mean as a human and not you know a writer necessarily and so I was like oh I can do this but my my actual formatting was garbage because I never took a class and all the writing I did in college was I was a business major and a theater minor technically 
So all the writing I did was like, you know, law papers and like acting evaluations of different plays and stuff. So I didn't write, right? So I didn't, and especially didn't write screenplays or TV, you know, anything for your screen at home. And I was like blind by that. So I learned how to write through Second City through sketches. And then I tried to apply it to TV and film. And, you know, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I'm still not a, you know, great writer, but it gets the job done. And, you know, I think the trick is that nobody knows what they're doing out in LA, period. So like, if you can not necessarily fake it, but just try, someone will be like, oh, that's funny. I can help you fix it, make it the right thing. And then I stumbled into producing. Producing was a full-blown accident. And it's honestly how I've made all of my dollars. No, that's not true. But it's how I've made the, I I was able to actually switch out of being, you know, an administrative assistant or I I was like in charge of all the classes at Second City for a long time. I was there for seven years in the office. And so I was able to transition out of a nine to five customer service job into the film industry. So by accident, I mean, it was like a whole bunch of things lining up and I said, yes, thanks Second City. Hey, <laughs> um, so I mean that's that's kind of I don't remember the question did I answer no, it? you did but I want to go back because you said okay. so many gems and then my fucking video what well, this is uh, an interview on zoom folks because this is COVID <laughs> times and this is where we're at and you said this great quote you said nobody knows what they're doing in LA period but my uh, audio kind of cut out and so can I just get you saying that cleanly again because yes. it's so fucking true <laughs> It's so true. And nobody does know what they're doing in LA. So what is your, when you say that, do you mean from a, like a a production standpoint, or do you mean literally like all facets of entertainment? Uh, Oh, I thought you were going to say like all facets of Los Angeles. Cause I was like, yeah. Well, okay, great. Yes. (laughs) Um, I think it's, I think it's production. I think it's a little bit of everything. I think, you know, really good actors have training. And I think really good, very successful, fast to be successful writers have a lot of good education, but also every room is different. Every production is different. Every show is different. Every executive producer or showrunner works differently. So I think that no one knows what they're doing and we're all just kind of making it up as we go. Mm. Literally in the best possible way. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question and you don't have to answer this. Do you still want to act? Yes. So I do audition still. Okay. Um, And I still, and I, I book things rarely. I think it's, you know, it's, it's strange to say this, but I think it's a weird world for an average looking white girl in TV. And I mean that not to be like, Kate, tell me I'm pretty, but I mean it as far as She is, by the way, this is ridiculous, but I'll let it go. I'm letting it slide. Go ahead. (laughs) How do you mean it, Carrie? I, I mean it as far as like, I'm like an ordinary white girl Mm. and not to look, I think that representation is more than important. And I think it's extremely important in TV and film. And in fact, I think it's the most important for our younger generation to see themselves in the world, you know? with this upcoming election, I think it's beautiful to see these young girls dress up as a vice president and young black girls dress up as a vice president and believe that they can be that. So I I don't say that to be shitty to myself. I just say it as fact and the best possible way that like, I don't, I would rather have a role go to a very talented Asian friend of mine because representation is important. So I think that because I, I didn't break in as an actor as fast as I could have when I moved here, the roles for me are fewer. What do you mean as fast as you could have? I mean, you know, could have, would have. No, but I, but I think that a lot of us wrestle with this. And so I really love to hear what, if you're willing to unzip your skin a little bit on this, like I totally resonate with that. So what do you mean by that? I mean, I think, so I moved here and I almost immediately got a theatrical agent But I came from the world of theater. So, like, I didn't know how to audition for TV and film. And I think I kind of threw that opportunity away a little bit because I didn't ask for help and I didn't ask for guidance. You know, auditioning for theater is different. Preparing for a theater scene is different. Auditioning on camera is fully different. And this was 12 years ago when producer sessions were in the room for your first session. So, you know, the director's there, the producers are there, the casting directors are there. You know, there are six or seven people in there. And these are the people that you want to be in front of. 
but I didn't know what I was doing. And I was too scared and too naive to ask for help. And I wish I had asked for help because, you know, I'm trained as an actor, but it's a different skill. It's like test taking is a different skill than being smart. It's a skill to audition properly for TV and film. And I didn't have that skill and I didn't ask for help. And I kind of fell into a slight depression and just didn't even try for a couple of years. Same. And so I kind of pretended to keep going as an actor when I wasn't auditioning and then I lost my, that agent. And so I, I think that I had the opportunity. I was lucky enough to have, you know, a little something handed to me and I, and I wasted it, but I still get great auditions and every now and then I do book great roles, but it, it's just so much easier to work as a producer and a writer. And that's, it, that sounds like me being kind of a dick, but it's easier once you start as a producer, it just snowballs. And similar as a writer, you know, people are like, oh, this girl would be good for this show. Or it's a lot of word of mouth. It's always, you know, people say it's who you know in Hollywood. And it is so gross and true because I have gotten 100% of my jobs as a producer from referrals. Not including the first one. Like I just, I've never applied for a production for a producer job. And that's honestly, like I said before, it's how I make my money, but it's how I pay my rent. And that matters. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit as you, I'm, I'm being very rude as Carrie is talking. I'm writing down a bunch of things because she's giving me so many (laughs) gems and I want to go backwards. So we're just going to go back a second. So you, when you decided after, cause, cause with a theater degree and a business degree, I mean, I think that's a beautiful marriage and we'll talk about that later, but why not then, okay, New York feels like it would make the most sense for, for stage. And I get this question a lot too, because I resonate sort of more theater is exploration of character a bit more, not that the tel- film and television are aspirational and I want to do those too. But as an, as like an actor's actor, it's like, Oh, but the theater is so rich and delicious for a hundred reasons. So why not New York? Great question. I was in college in Boston and BU had this cool post-grad program in LA that was a semester long and it taught you how to understand the industry a little bit. And I was like a weird balance of the theater school there because I was the only theater minor that was allowed to take a handful of like their major classes. It's a whole different thing. I got I got into it with the dean of that school because he was a dick and he was like, <laughs> you're not allowed to do this. And I was like, why? No one. No Give one me else. a logical reason. Yeah, I have. I want to do the thing. I'll do the work. And, you know, a handful of the teachers in the program stood up for me. So he kind of lost the battle a little bit. That is a whole nother story for a different day but (laughs) he let me into the program and I think it was like my final battle at BU and I was like I gotta go I mean I want to learn what it's like to do tv and film and it did give us the basics of auditioning like I said before but it wasn't like a genuine lesson it was like they so they paired us up with casting directors and agents and you did an internship for two months with a casting director and you did an internship with an agent for two months. So you could learn how those offices worked, you know, how they worked together, how they worked separately. And it was a really wonderful, informative four months. And it was technically credits towards a master's, but I didn't get a master's because there wasn't like a master's program. It was like, if you were to go to grad school, you could use, you could have a semester of credits because we had night classes in addition to all of that. But the information that I got from being in the casting office, who the two, the casting director is still one of my best friends to this day. And the agent, the internship and the agency all were so helpful to learn how the industry works, but not perform, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, which is an important piece that I think we miss and that we don't realize as actors is actually fundamental. That's why I think the marriage of your degrees is like, oh, that's fucking brilliant it's like an actor being like i also majored in marketing it's like well that's why your instagram's curated and perfect well done you yeah i think that's a good healthy marriage so you do that internship you sort of learn the ropes and then it was like well i formed these relationships in la so it doesn't make a ton of sense to go to new york yeah so i always loved theater i'm not a good singer i am passable for like a sketch show i can make it work but i'm not a broadway singer and the amount of jobs for a straight actor on Broadway are very little. And I think my rational brain was like, well, I'm already here in LA and I've made these connections, like you said, and I, I hate it. I hate it here. This, you know, 12 years ago, Carrie, 
hated LA, but I was like, I'm going to give it a year and let's see what happens. And, you know, 12 years later, here we are. I stayed. What, what shifted after that first year then? So the first four months was great because I met, I moved here knowing zero humans and I met a whole bunch of people within the program. I became friends with the casting director and her associate are two of my greatest friends, like I said, and that helped a lot. And then I was kind of pushed by a girl in the program to like take classes at Second City or Groundlings. And they were like, just do something because my whole life up until that moment, I had been a school person, you know, like I went to high school, I went to college and then I was like magically out of college. It was 2008. The recession was happening. I didn't know what that meant, but like I couldn't get a real job. And so I was out here, you know, doing my best at, you know, walking dogs and crying a lot. And um, I eventually, like I said, I took classes and that helped a lot. But I think the turning point was like becoming an adult, I guess, where it was like, I'm in charge of my own life now. And no one's going to tell me that I have to be up at 8 a.m. for a class. So I just kind of, you know, took a class at Second City, for example, and then I loved it. And so I was like, I guess I'll just do the next level and then I'll do the next level. And it kind of breathed life back into me because I was so used to taking class anywhere, any kind of class, whether it was economics or like the history of theater, I knew how to do that. So I like focused everything that, you know, the week, if it was awful and I was depressed and crying, I would just focus on knowing that I had this three hour window every week that I could go perform and it didn't matter. And I didn't have to memorize a script for the first time. And so like, it was so freeing. And then I slowly found my community through all different avenues from just moving here and like trying different things. And I felt better. And then I, you know, got an agent. So it was like a slow burn, I guess, that kept me here. There's always, you know, a glimmer in my heart to be successful enough in this world that I can just like go to New York and they're like, yeah, Carrie's going to be in this play for four, four months. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, that's the dream. Same girl. Same. I'm like, oh, I have a residency, but I don't have to live here beyond this. Okay. Thank you. Patrick Stewart are going to do something from like, (laughs) you know, we'll do waiting for Godot like he did with. Oh uh, God. I don't remember who co-starred, but yes. Like, yeah. Anyway, that's a. Ian McKellen co-starred. Let's just put it out there. Who cares? Let's just put it out there. There's no (laughs) reason. I shouldn't laugh. You're right. It's an option. Good. It is a fucking option. Good. Okay. (laughs) So, okay. So you find your people, you're improvising and now sort of in the, the, I guess the, the morphing of yourself and your experience in the 12 years, has there ever been a time where you were like, I, because obviously the, we're going to get to it, but like the customer service jobs and stuff, you've had to work simultaneous jobs whilst you were, you know, in, in the mix and auditioning and whatever. Was there ever a time where you were like, LA is too expensive. This is too hard. And I'm fucking out. Like, I can't do this. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents are wonderful, lovely humans and all they wanted was for me to say something like that. Cause I was struggling at the beginning and all they wanted was for me to be like, I'm coming home because they would take me, but I'm stubborn. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was at that time I was walking dogs. I was working for a BU grad who is a little bit older and I was doing her marketing for her, you know, couple hours every day, part-time. And I was interning at Second City to pay for my classes. And yes, I was like, this is hard. This is expensive. I had a roommate who was a full-blown sociopath. And I, I, I just was like, this, I guess, is my life. But I just kind of wanted to power through because I didn't want to not be a performer. And because I had a marketing degree, my father kept sending me job applications oh, bless you know, his in heart. 2009, 2010 for marketing positions, you know, for big corporations. And I was furious. I was like, I don't want to do this. This is not where my heart is. Like, yes, I can do that job and I will not apply for it. And so, you know, that was his gentle way of being like, you have an option. But eventually both of my parents gave up on pushing that because I'm too stubborn. And, you know, eventually now I've figured out a way to make it work. And the craziest point is in this industry, I can pay my rent and I'm doing pretty okay, pretty well as a producer, writer, and an actor, but it's still fucking terrifying because there are gaps between jobs in this industry and it's inevitable and it's not 
consistent and you don't know if a show is going to get shut down or canceled immediately or even before we start shooting if it's canceled or if you're uh, acting and your part gets cut like you don't know you don't have you have zero security even when you are in the position that like I'm able to not necessarily work as a customer service agent 40 hours a week so it's a choice and it's also exhausting and rewarding, but still exhausting. And because I know Carrie outside of this, I'm, and if you're not comfortable talking about this, I will edit this out. (laughs) But I was trying to lead you into telling the story of how you got hit by a fucking car because I would have been like, burn the city down. I'm fucking out. And the fact that that didn't even come to the forefront of your mind means you're truly an actor's actor because that fucking would have been my fucking answer. Carrie Weisberg, like she got hit by a fucking car in Los Angeles. And I mean, are you comfortable giving? Oh yeah. Okay. um, That's so funny. I, that was 2014 and I was working at second city full time at that point. And by full time, I mean, you know, 40 plus hours a week programming classes and an office job. And this was customer service, though. It was customer service. Oh, 100%. It was during the summer. So we had summer camps. And that was always the most stressful within the office at Second City for me, because I'm dealing with all the parents and all the kids and, you know, programming a new camp once a week. And, you know, it's a lot. And so that was two days. It was July 2nd, I believe. I remember that because 4th of July was about to happen and I had just had the most garbage day at work and I was furious and I just needed to go for a walk. So I went for a walk with my dog and I left my phone at home because I was enraged and like could not, I just didn't, I didn't want to hear from anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just needed to be alone. Uh, So I had my keys and my dog. And we were walking, we were going to the park that we always go to. And it was like seven at night. And the, it was one of those days. And I'm sure anybody who drives that's listening to this knows when you're driving towards the sunset and it's like right in your eyes and you're like, I hope no one's there. Turns out <laughs> there was I a was person. there uh, because this, it was a four way stop and the guy had stopped and I stepped into the street and I was looking the other direction for the other car that was about to stop. And I heard a car accelerate and I just assumed it was the cross traffic. So I didn't look and he hit me. I went up on the windshield. He slammed on the brakes. I flew. Millie, my dog, pulled enough in front of me and I must have let go of the leash. I mean, I saw nothing. So I was fully limp. I didn't even get knocked out. I like sat up from the pavement and I looked around and I'm like 150 feet from the stop. My dog, my sweet angel dog, is sitting in the crosswalk just staring at me and like not moving. And she's scared of strangers. So like, People are trying, dozens of people, I almost said hundreds, that's a lie. It was probably like 20 people within their cars or walking around that neighborhood. It was a nice little neighborhood. Saw it and all stopped and everyone's staring at me. And I'm just like, where's my dog? And she won't come to me because I'm scream crying and I have, you know, cement all over my teeth. I'm covered in blood. And my favorite part was like, you know, the cops show up, the ambulance shows up and the paramedics show up. Everyone checks me out. And I was like, uh, can you just give me a ride home? I'm like eight blocks that way. You're like, oh, we don't let dogs in our car, but we'll drop your dog off at the shelter. Fuck you. And, yes. And give you a ride to the hospital. And I was like, um, no. And then I asked the cops and I, everyone said the same thing. So I did like sign that form that was like refused service. I didn't and know then, this piece of your story, Carrie. That is insane. Oh, it's insane. And also if anybody knows me that's listening to this knows that there's nothing more important to me in this world than dogs. Yeah. And so they're like, oh, we'll just put your dog in the shelter and you can pick her up tomorrow. And I was like, that sounds like you just, my soul out of my body. You. Yeah. I'm sorry. You killed my daughter? No, thanks. Yeah, no. So then the guy that hit me, Kate, was like, I'll drive you home. And I said, I don't think you're a very good driver. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) I didn't know that either. (laughs) So then I walked home. You'll love this part too. So I walked home eight blocks. I'm covered in blood. I have no phone. They're like, can we call someone for you? And I was like, I don't know anyone's numbers. My, my parents had just moved to New York. My dad changed his cell phone number. My mom changed her cell phone number. So I don't know lesson in not knowing anyone's numbers. The only number I knew was second city's number. And I was like down the street from them. So I started walking home and then I was like, maybe I should tell somebody that I got hit by a car. And so I like walk up to Second City and, you know, people are in and out. It's bustling. 
and I walk into the office and it's a comedy theater, you guys. So me covered in blood, people are like, what's the bit? (laughs) So I walk in and my friend Jonathan was like, what's going on? What are you doing? And I just start scream crying. Like I, it just like left my body because I, I saw a familiar face. I didn't know what to do. And he was like, whoa, that's not fake blood. And my friend Carrie Ann was in the back and she like peeked out because scream cry. And uh, she was like, what happened? I was like, I got that hit by a car, but they wanted to take Millie from me. You know, I'm like garbled of words. She was like, get in the car. I'll take you home. You drop off your dog and we're going to the hospital. And so she took me. And uh, thank God, because I would have gone home. And who knows if I fell asleep and had a concussion. I mean, who knows? Well, and and there's a, I mean, there's a hundred things here, but did, so in that moment when you were like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to be taken to the hospital by this friend that I met through the improv community that I'm now part of. Was that maybe an anchor to the city that maybe kept you from being like, fuck this place? Yeah, I think it was. I think, you know, the, I feel like adult friendships are different than college friendships and high school friendships. And like, that sounds like a very simple sentence. And I have so many good friends from college that I'm still very close to. But this was like a person that was taking care of me as a person. And she immediately, you know, she took me home. I took my dog upstairs and on speakerphone in her car was our boss. And she's like, Carrie's not coming in tomorrow. I'm taking her to the hospital. And I was like, oh, I can work. And she's like, both of them, you know, my boss on the phone and my friend Carrie Ann were like, no, you need to stay home. You were yeah. hit by a car. And so they were like taking care of me in a way that was like, you know, it's not just like a fun community. It's like when you need it, this community was there for you. And it was like, I'm not going to let this. It's tricky. It's a really interesting question, Kate, because I didn't want to let something like that take me out. And I also didn't want to give up because I wasn't ready. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> wasn't ready. I love it. Okay, I wasn't great. ready. I was, I, I wanted this my whole life. I knew I wanted this. And, you know, it was miserable working customer service within a theater that you loved and all of your people were there. It was miserable. And it, it, um, I had to, I, I wish I'd gotten out of it sooner, but I didn't have an out sooner. And, um, If anything were to break me, it would have been staying there longer and then just fully giving up, I think. Yeah. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, you you said it like perfectly that even even getting hit by a car for an artist, if it's in your veins, even that if if you're not ready to be done, because some people are artists in their veins and they choose to walk away and I get it. I totally fucking get it. That doesn't mean it's not any less part of your DNA and it's not a heartbreaking experience to walk away from it, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just like that. I mean, not only did that not come to the forefront of your mind when I asked the question, but also you're like, I just wasn't, no, of course not. Like I wasn't ready. Like it just, I wasn't ready. And I never even thought about it like that because to me it was like, it's not really a choice. And, you know, you always hear people say, like, if there's anything else that you want to do besides being an actor, do that. And I'm like, fuck that. Do both. Like, yeah. You can do both. Yeah. I, I find that. I mean, and some guests on the podcast have said that. And I understand sort of where they're coming from. And I, I fundamentally, like, I have, I'm certain I've said that to a younger version of myself and when asked and been like, oh, no, please, like, figure out anything else. But I think that comes from such a genuine place of just purely a struggle mentality and and like a, oh, no, this is an uphill climb and I don't think you can handle it. And it's like, we don't actually know what the person we're talking to can actually handle. Like, I doubt if you had talked to yourself in college and been like, you know what, Carrie, when you get hit by a car, you're still not going to give up. You're still going to be able to, to crush it. You'd be like, fuck you. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I know. know. I, like, no way. <laughs> If I told myself in college that this is where I'd be right now, it, she would be like, you're lying. This is stupid. You don't write. <laughs> you're stupid. <laughs> like, come but, on. And, and like, I agree with the overall sentiment of the idea. Like, if there's anything else that you want to do. Like, yes, if, if there's an actor out there who's struggling but is also equally as passionate about spreadsheets, bitch, do it. <laughs> Crush them spreadsheets. Do yes. it. Yes. But – it's okay. It's okay to be a hyphen. It's okay to have the job that pays the bills and 
whether, you know, for me it's producing and I'm so lucky because I do love it or whether it's being a bartender. And I have friends that are wonderful bartenders who love that and don't necessarily want to give up because they could, they could fully pay for their life as an actor and not bartend, but it's security and it's also their community, you know? So I don't, I'm not of the mind of if there's anything, anything else that you want to do, because I think you can be a hyphenate. I think hyphenates are cool. And I, and I think that's also a, a beautiful commentary on the fact that, you know, it, it is possible to still harness the passion of wanting to be a creative artist and still utilize that passion and also have this other thing. I, I, I don't, I mean, yes, I think your point is very well made. And I think that that's something that gets overlooked often is, you know, it's, it's the, I wish I could think of his name, the gentleman that was on the Cosby show who was photographed at Trader Joe's and everyone was like, oh, how sad, what a sad story. And he was like, like, I'm good. Like, I got to, I, I still got to pay my bills and this is just a job. And then ended up becoming, he's a series regular on a Tyler Perry show, which like, God love right. him. But and like, he's also like, I like Trader Joe's. Yeah. He wasn't like, he feels sorry. He wasn't like, oh, somebody please hire me. I'm still so, he was like, right. This is a, this is a good job. Like, I'm okay. Yeah. I've <laughs> like, had health insurance, you guys. Yeah. I don't know what you're yelling at me for. Yeah. And also I get a discount on all these products and like yes, everybody delicious. goes, yeah, everything's great there. Okay. So get, so up to speed now. So you, you stick it out. You've been in LA, you said for 12 years. And mm -hmm. do you now, not that we want to get into like COVID stuff, but did COVID and that sort of shutdown of the industry, did that affect you directly? Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know, but I would say yes, because I was like on a roll at the beginning of this year, Kate, I was like, had to turn down jobs as a producer. And there was one week in February that I was like crying. I was so joyful because I just moved to my new apartment in February and everything just felt like I changed my own energy. So I had, I was producing a show. I was writing a different show that I could do, you know, freelance and I was paid as an actor all within the same week. So I was like, I don't like I'm doing it. I'm it's happening. And it was just like this insane momentum that was happening all the way through the end of February. And then, you know, Oscars were obviously beginning of February, but it was still like rolling through all of these crazy job offers and job opportunities. And then all of a sudden everything shut down. And you can't help but think like, I hope people don't forget about me. But meanwhile, people are like, I need to not forget about me. Mm. So I think it's a minute before it comes back to being able to hire people that you want to hire because it's hard to work during COVID. I've only had, not only, I'm grateful, one show that I've worked on and it's a lot of work. And if I could have hired all of my friends, I would have, but it's a different world right now. Sure. So yes, I think it did affect me. I can't prove it was direct, but I, I'm... It felt personal. And um, so does that, I mean, but that even COVID is not enough to make you pack it all up and go. No, I mean. Good, that's it. That's no. all I need. That's great. No, great. I'm into it. That's all you guys say. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So, okay. We will, well, folks, that was, that was the intro. Those were the apps. Oh, cool. We hoped you enjoyed all of those delicious apps. This is why I get to ask probing questions when you interview people, you know, kind of well, cause then you're like, oh, I can get you to, <laughs> to say the manipulated thing I want you to say. Um, well now folks, we're going to move on to the entrees <laughs> after a quick break. back and now it's time for the entrees quickest quickest break ever okay so this is the speed round of questions now feel okay. free to tell stories we'll get into it um don't don't feel like you have to you know you're a producer and so i know you're efficient so don't feel like you have to be efficient uh, i'm also wordy because perfect you know. good it's a podcast turns out we need the words so it's a good thing <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm into it okay so what was your first job ever 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 where the government was like taking taxes out not like you can count babysitting some people have but like something where you're like oh i was hired for fill in the blank i worked at a restaurant called mouse okay. in denver as a hostess and the same at the same time i had two jobs i worked at a retail clothing store called garberini in oh, okay. And was Mao's, what's, what style of food was Mao's? It was Asian fusion. That's it. I feel like it's a chain. I feel like I've heard of it or eaten there or something. It's not a chain. It's not it's a chain. closed now, but there is a Mao something in LA. Maybe that's what not I'm thinking. Related. Not, related. not related. Okay. And you said Garberini's and that was retail? Garberini. Yeah. It was like upscale women's clothing. 
That sounds like a goddamn nightmare. Oh, I got kidnapped from that store. Okay, so we're going to break from tradition and we're going to need you to tell that story right now. <laughs> we're going to, I'm so sorry, we're going to just get into it. Um, I'm sorry, you were what? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was this girl, Julie, and she was, I was 18, something like that, 18, 17 or 18. And I was essentially a stock girl, you know, like I would make sure the shoes were in the right place and hang things up. I was never allowed to use the register because they were very, very fancy. And like I was 17 and they didn't trust me. And all I wanted, you know, when you go to the museum as a kid, I loved using the register. Yeah, the buttons. Yes, the buttons. Yes, that's a thing. They wouldn't wouldn't even let me answer the phone. So I was like (laughs) always in the back. It was, it sucked. And like always had to smile. And, you know, my parents raised me very well that I'm very polite to a fault. Mm. And so I, of course, just like did what I was told, got walked all over. But there was this woman, Julie, I was 17 or 18. She must have been like 40 40, you know, 40, 45. She was my friend and like treated me like a human was like this whimsy, skinny, hippie lady with a Vespa and (laughs) goals. Hashtag goals. Go ahead. (laughs) Yes. Except for she one day had a breakdown. I now know it as a psychotic break. Oh, like legit. Yeah. She came into the stock room and was like, I need you to come with me. They don't treat you right here. And I was like, well, I just got here. It was like, you know, nine in the morning. It's like, I just got here, you know, is everything okay? And she was like, yeah, let's, let's just go get a coffee. I was like, yeah, I guess we could go get a coffee. So I go outside. She is on her Vespa. <laughs> she hands me her helmet and she says, get on polite. Carrie Weisberg got the fuck on. And she rode around downtown Denver and we went to this old bar. I wish I could tell you what she was talking about. I did write something about this in college, but I, I need to find that. But we went to this old bar that was like shut down and she was like having a full-blown psychotic break, like talking about, I think her ex-boyfriend and like she went off the fucking rails, Kate, like fully just rambling and rambling and rambling. And I thought we were going to get coffee. So I had like five bucks in my pants pocket, her Vespa helmet. I didn't have my... Nokia brick cell phone with me. Oh my God. And so, you know, she's, we're driving around all of downtown Denver. We go to um, five points, Colorado, which is at that time is like not safe for a 17 year old girl just to be like bebopping around on someone else's (laughs) Vespa. Um, (laughs) Who's having a psychotic break also. (laughs) She's having a full blown and I like have no way out. There weren't Ubers. There are not cabs in Denver. I don't have coins to use a payphone, So like, I'm just like really struggling to find something. Eventually we end up at her apartment and her phone is ringing off the hook. It's my boss from, it's our boss from the store. And she's like, Julie, where are you? We're worried about you. Where's Carrie? Do you have Carrie? Have you seen Carrie? You know, and I can hear it's, you know, an old school voicemail. I can hear it. And she's like, they're terrible to you. They treat you poorly. I mean, fully lost it. And she was like, do not answer their questions. She goes through. <laughs> and you're a child. I'm like, a child. She goes through a tape drawer, hands me a mixtape that she had made for somebody years ago. But she like hands this to me. She's like, you protect this with your life. And she eventually like gets me back on her Vespa. And we land back at Garbarini at like 5 or 6 p.m. And I just walk in the front door because we left out the back. And then I was gone for eight hours. And I just like walk in the front door. And my boss was screaming at me. And I was like, I'm sorry, Julie took me. And she's like, where is Julie? Julie rode off into the night, Oh, just like rode off into the mountains. And I like get my stuff and I leave because it was my shift was over. So like, I didn't know what to do. I'm 17. I'd never. You also had had just dealt with someone who had a psychotic break. Like you've got to decompress from the patter of that conversation and the like, you thought you might die, like kind of a big deal. Not ready to bring anybody out. And I like look at my phone and I have like a hundred missed calls from work, but they didn't call my parents. So like I get home and my mom was like, Hey, how was work? And I was like, fine. And I just like (laughs) bottled that up and pretended like it never happened with my parents until like, you know, a couple years later, I was like, Hey, by the way, I was kidnapped once. (laughs) I mean, fully kidnapped. I had no access to anything. Oh, you were a child. She wasn't going to hurt me. She made that very clear. 
I didn't understand what was going on. It was a mental break. Yeah. If you ever have to utter the sentence to the human with you, don't worry, I'm not going to hurt you. Like we, we got a, a whole lot of fish that need frying. And one of them is you have a child with you. Yeah. That is, I, I cannot imagine because yeah. in the same situation, I probably would have done the exact same thing because like I was raised the same way. Like if the adult tells you to do a thing, you do the thing. Like, yeah. And I, you know, I'm lucky enough that I grew up in a safe house. My parents are amazing and I never felt, you know, I was protected. I was sure. in a bubble. And so I was like, Oh, the, the adult says what to do. And I said, okay, you know, you're, you must be safe. I trust you. And luckily I didn't get hurt or like left. Yeah. But I got kidnapped for a day Ooh, and she wanted to fire me. But I think the other girl that was working was like, you can't fire her for that. For being kidnapped, you dumb bitch. Like, no, you can't fire someone for steal. No, for being like. And then Julie, Julie surfaced like three days later. She went up to the mountains and then she checked herself into a mental hospital. Oh, God bless her. She needed that. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. and not making light of the traumatic events that would have led her to that. And like, it is good she didn't hurt you. And like, of course, we're not coming after people. Like a psychotic break is a very real thing and it's traumatic. And all of the, all of the, all of the qualifiers remain true. But we're talking about how it affected Carrie. (laughs) Carrie got, Carrie got snatched. Mental illness is real and I'm grateful she got help and sought help. But But don't snatch. Yeah. (laughs) She snatched you. <laughs> she snatched me. <laughs> that was like the sm- shortest version of Taken, but you live in the end and you weren't trafficked. I did, so I, I guess lived. that's great. And my dad's not Liam Neeson. <laughs> With a very particular set of skills. Okay, good. Right. Okay, well, that's great. So that was your, uh, that was a hybrid first job ever. Great. Yes. How many customer service jobs have you had? We've counted to the Mao's hostess and the Garbarini kidnapping experience. So that's two. What else we got? Does dog walking count? I think so. I absolutely yeah. think so. Dog walking. I was an administrative assistant. That counts for. I was a marketing manager type person. Did you have to interact with customers when you did that? Yes. I okay. party planned for her too. Oh my God. That's five and six. We count that okay, for let's two. Get five and six. Okay. Um, I mean, what else did I do? I worked. Anything during college besides the kidnapping job? No, well, that was pretty I was really lucky and didn't have to work during college. Yeah, you're very familiar. Okay, that's great. So that's still six. Uh, well, Second City, we haven't said it yet, but that's going to be. We'll count that as seven. Second city. And then, I mean, producing is customer service. I 100% agree. So that's A lot of people to please. Yep. Let's call it eight. Eight Eight-ish. Okay. Is there any other restaurants besides Mao's? No other restaurant. It's good. We can can stay with eight. I just don't want you to Oh, I was a teaching assistant. That counts nine. Parents, Um, kids. Yes. I I mean, I've been a camp counselor. Ten. Many, many times. Ten, eleven, twelve. We'll just make it twelve. We'll just round it to twelve. Okay. Um, I was a personal assistant for a little while. Vomit all over that. That's 13. I feel like I, I need to actually pull up my resume that I threatened at the beginning of this. Okay. Buh, 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 buh. I, you know, babysat. Of course. I can't, depending on how old you were when that happened, I don't know if, I, I, well, well, I think we should round it at lucky 13. It's October. It's Halloween week. Okay, uh, let's yeah. take it. Lucky, lucky 13. Okay. Great. All right. Is uh, what was your favorite job of all of the customer service jobs? Obviously, acting is like the dream, right? Writing. Mm-hmm. These are all things. But I don't I mean, I guess a version of acting is customer service, but not for this, these purposes of the customer service jobs you've listed. What's your favorite? I love dog walking. I love dogs. Really? Oh, I yeah. that. OK. I couldn't afford a dog. And so I was dog walking for a couple years and I had my own special doggies and it was lovely to have that. I need, I need it. I need animals. I loved it. And it was a pain because, you know, my, I still worked for a boss and she wasn't ideal. She was fine, but, uh, it's still a job, you know, but it was my favorite for sure. Oh, I love that. Okay. And how, how long did you do that? Uh, I think two years. And what was your least favorite of all of these jobs? I think I really wanted to like working in the store, but I got kidnapped. I think yeah. that jaded it. Yeah. I, I was like, if she doesn't say Gabarini's or whatever the fuck, she yeah, crazy. Garberini, yeah. Garberini's. I think it was my least favorite because I almost got stolen. Yeah. You got snatched. Least fave. Yeah. And what is the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst on the clock? The kidnapping you weren't asked to do, you were told to do. So I think that's a different, yeah. you don't get to say that. Mm-hmm. But we, we've had a lot of weird answers on this, so don't feel like you have to edit. That can I be. I feel like there's got to be something. Can you hear my dog drinking her water? No, bless her heart. No, I can't. Millie gets to okay, keep good. drinking. <laughs> um, the weirdest thing, there's got to be something with that party planning because that was my friend Sarah 
I was essentially her marketing person. I would do her taxes, whatever. Oh. Um, there must have been something with the weird parties because it was like big fancy BU parties and like Jason Alexander's a BU alum. I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. I'm certain I had to do something weird that was like make this thing for Jason Alexander. I, I, this is the second time with a second city person, Jason Alexander has come up on the podcast because, because of the Emmy that Dwayne got for the project that he did, he yeah. got Jason Alexander an Emmy. It was the first, like, and Jason Alexander never won for Seinfeld. And so I edited the story out. I don't know why I did, but now I'm going to put it on your episode because he, he emailed uh, Dwayne and like the, the co-producer, co-creator of the project and was like the entire time I was on Seinfeld, I never got an Emmy. Thank you for getting me my first oh, one. And like, I was really, Really lovely yeah and they He's had a good chill yeah isn't that lovely and he was like really lovely to them and like they had a great experience with him so it's like the second time that's so funny I did not know he was a BU alum and he um, was a BU alum and I feel like his name popped in my head because like I thought it was so cool that he was at those events and I'm sure that I had to do something weird with some weird you know BU celeb that they're also lovely. It's a BU event. It's like a closed circle, right? So they're like even nice to people like me checking their names off at the door. Oh, I'm, I need to come back to this. Okay. I, I don't know what the weirdest thing I was asked to do. It might have been something at Second City that was like. That's what I was assuming with parents or some bullshit with their kids to try yeah. and oh, move. The- there was one thing with a summer camp kid. I wasn't necessarily asked to do it, but I had asked the mom. A lot of the times in LA, if a child has um, like ADHD or something, parents will pull their kids off of their meds over the summer, which I do not recommend. Oh my God. I didn't know that. Yeah. So they're like, we want to give our kid a break. So it was a very common thing that we came across and these kids are clinically diagnosed. So their children and their brains need the medication. So they're not on the meds. And we had this one kid and I sat down with the mom once and he was just, he couldn't contain himself. He was was struggling and he, he couldn't help it, but he was very disruptive. And the mom goes, I'll take him to the park and run him before camp. And I, I looked at her and I was like, he's not a dog. Uh, nope, sure isn't. Human being. She's like, well, he needs to like burn the energy. And I was like, have you thought about putting him back on his medication? Did you say that? Yeah. Or either I said it or the girl in the room with me said it. I don't remember. But it was the one right of those thing- moments where like we weren't asking her to like change her child's brain chemistry. Oh. We were asking her to like do the right thing by the kid because – he kept getting in trouble and, and ugh, it was awful. That's really, really sad. Like, did that, did he yeah. end up doing better? I think the mom put him back on his meds. I think she felt, she was like, well, I thought it was good to give him a break. And then she put him back on and he was fine. Yeah. I mean, if you actually have that condition, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's misdiagnosed a lot, but when you actually have it, you yeah. can't function in the world without the medication. It's like, I, that's a, I get it. Whatever. I'm not a parent. I don't get to comment. That is pretty intense that you had to have that kind of conversation. Okay. I'll give you that one. If yeah. you think of anything else, throw it in later, whenever. I'm sure there's like a funny version of that, but it's okay. It's, it's it. honest. Also, like, just to be very clear, I've done so much weird shit with all of my jobs that like, nothing's popping in my head because none of it's normal. Right. That is, that is a very common. Yeah. When you've had the myriad of like weird, try to make it work hodgepodge jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Things come up also party planning. Like that is just a weird sort of seems like it would be fun. And then you do it and you're like, Oh, I'm going to kill myself. All right. So what is an incident that made in any of these customer service jobs um, that made the person that you were interacting with asked to speak to your manager or your boss or whomever was in charge? It was always at Second City, almost always at Second City. And it would would have been either I didn't refund a class that somebody didn't attend and or they didn't get what they wanted out of a class or they signed up for the wrong class and I would switch them instead of refunding the money. And they're like, I just don't want to come anymore. The thing is, in that situation that almost that was almost every time that anyone's ever asked to speak to my manager, it's not that we're not telling people when they sign up for classes that it's non-refundable, non-transferable. That just flew out of my mouth because I've said it a million times. Every single time I sign up some, someone for a class at Second City or when I would, you say, before you click the payment button, by the way, do you under, do you acknowledge that this is non-refundable, non-transferable? Yes. Great. People just don't listen. Sure. So anytime, it was always to do with money and I would almost always pass them up to my boss. I, I it's a small office, as you know, Kate, mm-hmm. it's five or six people. So everyone can hear everyone's conversations. I'd pass them up to my boss and she would usually 
have my back, but it was almost always money related. A couple times when I was in the restaurant, I worked there for two years, I think. They would ask to see my manager if I gave them a table they didn't like. Oh, suck a dick. Die. I hate that shit. That makes me insane. I'm too close to that situation. No, I should probably not say anything. Um, (laughs) Can can I ask, um, in relation to the Second City thing, just to go back to something you said in the intro, you said it was really difficult to work at uh, this place that you loved in a customer service position. Why? Because you're seeing behind the curtain. I mean, Mm. it's a corporation and they need to make money and they need to beat their sales goals for the next year and the next year and the next year. And meanwhile, when I showed up, it was like this beautiful artistic theater. And it was kind of weird because it's like you said before, my combination of a marketing degree and a theater degree, they like both met with that world. But at a certain point when I worked there, everything was so intertwined that like if I was doing a new class or coaching or something, I was always the one that had to communicate with the office. And I was the office, so I had to also do work when I was doing a show. So it was it was all combined, and I saw the icky guts of how you make money and, like, you know, you manipulate people into buying new classes and doing that. And everyone needs to make money, and I get that. But I didn't need to look behind the curtain. I didn't want to look behind the curtain. I'm grateful for the job. It got me where I am, but I overstayed my welcome, I think. What made you get out of it? Um, I got that my first associate producing job while I was at Second City and it was four years ago. And, you know, a friend of mine offered me to come work on the show and they were shooting Saturdays and Sundays. So I was like, great, I can do this. I'll work five days a week and then I'll go shoot Saturday and Sunday. And I did that for four months. We shot every Saturday and Sunday for four months. I think we had one weekend off every six weeks, but I loved it. I like lived for it. And they were, it was a... A non-union, I'm assuming it was non-union, a show because it was like 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. Every now and then, every like four or five weekends, like fourth or fifth weekend, it would be an overnight shoot. And But it was always 12 hours minimum. And I was an associate producer, so it was a flat fee per day. And I was just grateful to have the extra cash. And I loved it. I loved it because I was like, this is where I want to be. I want to be on set. I got that job and I was just like empowered enough to be like, holy smokes, there's something better out there. And I was making the same on my daily rate for two days a week that I was for my weekly rate at Second City. Yeah, that's... So I was like, I guess even if I get paid this, I could do it if I work two days a week. So there wasn't like a last straw moment where you were like, light this on fire? Yeah, there was. Uh, 